This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Zoe Abelson, and she is the founder of Grawl and someone who sells watches. Zoe, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here tonight. You were so worried about the wrong, boring questions being asked to you, so we're going to make sure that we ask a lot of interesting questions. But in general, you know, how do you like the process of talking about watches to the public. Podcasting, obviously you're very active on social media. Just talk a little bit about what it's like to talk about watches to people. I probably don't talk about much else except for watches, to be honest. I've realized that in so many new conversations I have with strangers, it somehow leads to watches. So it's kind of my life. Um, And my Instagram kind of shows both my work life in the industry, my outside of that as well. But it all kind of comes back to watches and it sounds obsessive and really crazy, but it just kind of, um, I find myself really, really passionate about it. And because I love the watch world so much and working with watches and doing something that it just doesn't seem like work to me. So it kind of takes over. I think a very common term I hear, especially amongst mature people in the industry, whether collectors or brand people um, or retail people, is the term addiction. <laughs> it's an addiction. <laughs> you get you get the watch bugs. Sometimes it's a disease, and other times it's you know it's a problem. But people say about it is a joking way. But it's not uncommon for there to be situations like yourself where you live and you breathe watches. It becomes your work. Um, And I have to say, that was me. I was someone who had an enthusiasm for watches and turned it into my day-to-day work. Um, I remember a long time ago thinking to myself that I had been thinking about watches or talking about them every single day since I was about 21 years old. I don't think there's any other topic or very few other topics that I've discussed or has been on my mind every single day um, for, you know, basically half of my life. <laughs> and and we talk about it jokingly, but it's it's are are there other industries you think that do that or is it is it sort of just watches? Because there's not too much else out there like it. <laughs> I feel like probably art um is quite similar. People probably get so engulfed in the culture of collecting art and um I would think that is and Vintage cars as well. I actually did a speech um, or as a moderator for a panel at the Concourse de Elegance in Greenwich this past summer with a few other watch watch people. And um, before the panel started, I was just walking around. I know nothing about vintage cars. Like for me, it's, it's totally aesthetic based. You know, if a watch, sorry, if a car looks cool, then I like it, but it doesn't go deeper than that. And I was just walking around with all these amazing vintage cars. And as I was going up to the car owners, they all started talking about their cars, like watch people. You know, the bumper is actually from Europe, even though it's an American car, but I like the way that European bumpers look slimmer and make the profile and all this stuff. And I just was cracking up because there are so many similar nuances to collecting vintage cars as it is to collecting watches. So I feel like probably 
to answer your question, vintage cars and art are probably fairly similar where people just are totally addicted once they get into it. Another phenomenon that I think is interesting, and this is very relevant to you on social media, is I'm trying to think how to explain this. I've talked about this before, but people have accounts and it's basically often their only social media account, which is entirely focused around them as a watch enthusiast. It's in the name of the account. It's oftentimes much, if not the only thing they post. It's so interesting to me that people define themselves online through this hobby. Nothing else about them is really told. They are present on social media, but it's through the lens of them being enthusiastic about watches. And like you said, you have a little bit of that in cars and other things like that. But I think that watches especially, I've seen it in, and it just surprises me, the sheer number of accounts on Instagram alone that that are somehow related to sort of the, the horological or watch hobby. Um, and, and not everyone spends time thinking about that, but isn't it kind of outstanding? It's crazy, and I feel like we have enough. <laughs> like, <laughs> I feel like there are so many watch accounts, and the ones, like, I'm all for, you know, inclusivity and the more the merrier and building such an amazing watch community. But there are so many accounts that I just find slightly silly where it's, you know, a person has one watch and 300 pictures of wrist shots with, you know, mediocre backgrounds. That to me is kind of pointless because not because you only have one watch, but it's just the same thing 300 times. I like variety. I love how social media has really brought really great attention to the watch world and really to me is the number one factor of why the watch market kind of blew up and became what it is today. It provided accessibility to so many people that haven't seen, haven't had the chance to see so many watches in person. You get to see it online. You get to communicate with other people about them and learn. Um, so I love that, but I think there are so many accounts where it's a person with one watch and they're taking a million wrist shots with like different backgrounds. And I, I feel like we have enough of those, but I'm all for people, you know, starting new accounts. If they have some really cool and interesting pieces, we're not (laughs) already seeing some very good advice for people starting out their watch accounts. But in general, I want to ask you your opinion on why. Why is it that people do that? They they publish the picture of the same watch or they even have a great variety. What is the <laughs> impetus? You have a business impetus. I'm a media platform. But what is the impetus amongst most people by putting their hobby out there? What are they looking for exactly? I'm very curious your opinion on that. Community. I think it's, it's very much so um, wanting to be a part of a community of people that share the same passion. The watch world prior to social media was such a niche hobby. And there weren't a lot of events that brought people together. Um, You certainly didn't have access to watch collectors in different countries and being able to like meet new people. So I really feel that people create these accounts to start Instagram accounts. I find it really funny. There are so many instances that I I run into where someone introduces themselves with their, you know, real name, first and last name, and I have no idea who they are. And then they'll say their Instagram handle. I'm like, 
oh, of course I know you. I've talked to you for years. It's so interesting that like there are so many people that I communicate on social media with and I have no idea their first and last name. I just know their Instagram handle. So I find that really funny. It is funny. It's a vector (laughs) for making friends. It is. And back to the instance where I think that um, having social media presence really is about the community behind it and being able to meet new people and talk to people about their passion. About a year and a half ago, after moving back from Hong Kong to New York, I started to really see that there are so many amazing collectors in New York. There's just such a scene of collectors for events and meeting. And I put on my Instagram account just a story that said, women that are interested and enthusiastic about watches, if you want to join a WhatsApp community, send me a DM. And that day, after posting that story, I had over 150 women join this WhatsApp group. And it was 150 women that either worked in the watch world or were just in general, very interested in learning about watches or already pretty seasoned collectors all around the world. And everyone just kind of wanted to chat and tell their stories and send a wrist shot. And it was so amazing to see that, especially one for so many women to be interested in watches, which was kind of new for me to see, but also just that people just wanted to be a part of like a group chat to communicate with other people enthusiastic about what they were interested in. Are there any differences in how groups of women appreciate watches versus how groups of men appreciate watches in your opinion? (laughs) That's a very good question. Oh, I really have to think about that. I think that for so long, it was such a male dominated hobby that you just typically have a lot more men who have been collecting for a long time compared to women. There are some amazing female watch collectors that have been collecting for over 20 years. And I love speaking with them just because they have seen so many changes in the industry and the watch market. But typically, I think that's the biggest difference. There's just usually men who have been collecting for longer than women. At this point. So do you see that the trajectory of collecting amongst groups of women is following a similar path? I've noticed that internationally, where there's certain cities that haven't really been into watches, they tend to follow similar trajectories as more uh, mature collecting cities, meaning they sort of all end up in the same place. Do you think that's sort of the same for groups of women or do you see it going in a slightly different direction? I really hope so. I definitely think that the potential is there. I think for um, for that to happen, I think brands really need to start focusing more on women who collect watches than or just the market in general instead of really separating you know female collectors from male collectors because personally, most of my watches are actually you know categorized as male as men's watches, not ladies' watches, and I think that um, having like these categories can actually hinder women from getting watches that they may really, really love, but they're not thinking about because it's categorized as an, a men's watch or it's too big for their wrist. I've always been curious about this because I was under the belief that 
when you're a woman, you have two essentially options or directions you can go in. You can go buy a watch which is intended for female wrists, or you could just as equally go buy a men's watch and wear it yourself. You know it's a men's watch. Maybe that's part of why you like it. I guess the question is, is that part of the psychology for some uh, women? They're buying the men's watch and they actually like that it's a men's watch. That's part of why they want to wear it. Yeah, probably. I think that would have something to do with it. And then the other side of that is that a watch is a watch and it doesn't really matter what it's considered. But for me, I'm just trying to put myself in, in the position that you're asking. I wouldn't say that I like would buy something more so because it's called a men's watch, but maybe it's possible that some people do. Well, I guess it's more related to fashion, right? I see uh, women being a little bit more in touch with the, the fashion vocabulary and they're looking yes. for certain looks and there's certain times where they're looking to have a look which requires certain masculine attire, obviously worn by a woman. And I think it goes into that. I think equally men sometimes are interested in designs that are women's watches and feel, of course, they can't wear it because it would it would say something about them that they may not want to say. But I, I think there's every guy has definitely had a situation where there's been a watch marketed towards women and we're thinking, could they make a slightly bigger one for me? Like, I really like the case shape. Like, it's, it is it is sort of an interesting thing. I don't know if there's any right answers, but it's an interesting thing to talk about. Let's change tack now to talk about you know, a little bit of the, the, the nuts and bolts of the business side of, of, of your life. Um, you are essentially a, an agent for certain watch brands. Um, that means you essentially have relationships with people that you sell watches to, whether they're existing relationships or brand new people. You help connect people with watches that they'll be happy with. But it's a lot more than, um, hello, I'd like to buy a watch. And you say, well, here's the watches I have. Um, what would you like to buy? It's a lot deeper than that. Um, and I know it's a very big topic, but discuss a little bit about sort of what's involved in the day-to-day of your work and how are these relationships with people uh, first formed and, and also maintained? So that's a really good question. And I want to start out by saying that all of my new clients, the relationships really start with a personal touch because I don't do any outbound marketing All of my new clients are either referrals because of word of mouth or through Instagram. So again, there's already kind of a personal um, start to the relationship where they at least know who I am or I know who they are because they were referred to me. And it's definitely more personal than transactional. And you're right. The first step that I need to do is really get to know them, understand what they have in their current collection, what they're looking to do with their collection. Um, you know, why are they coming to me? Are they coming to me just for advice to help expand their collection? Are they coming to me to consolidate their collection? But a lot of the first, probably like first week of working with someone is just really getting to know their collection and what they're looking to do with it. I think that I really focus on making sure that people love their watches and they're not just collecting it for investment. Usually if someone comes to me and they're like, I want a watch that, you know, I'm going to make money on. I usually just don't take them on as a client. That's not the type of consumer collector that I really vibe with. I really like to become friends with my clients. And there have been many times where 
the client has just said, you know, my significant other is always like, you talk to Zoe more than you talk to me or who's Zoe, you know, they get, (laughs) it just, it kind of, it, it definitely turns into a friendship where we're communicating pretty often. What do you always communicate about? You know, it's a, it's, you said it's a friendship. Are you musing about new watches? Is it just sort of life? And all of a sudden there's like, you know what? I'm in the mood to buy a new watch. Let's talk <laughs> about that. I've, I've always been fascinated. I know you used to work uh, at, at Govberg and Watchbox. And, you know, I know the team there really well. And long ago, I realized that a lot of consumers just sort of want to have like uh, a watch buddy that can also sort of satisfy their need. And totally. You serve that role. I, I mean, you and, and other people in your position serve that role so effectively, especially when you have the ability to, to you know, sell them different watches or interesting stuff or just generally chit chat with them. It, and it's for you, it's almost like you're, you're, you're cheating the rules of friendship where you get to have a friendship, but it's also like business time well spent. And it's, it's beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like it's. Um, Friends with like benefits. For, well, if I'm, I have that with my hobby, right? Like I make <laughs> money for my hobby because my job. So we have a slightly different approach to that that same thing. People also get jealous a little bit. They're like, wow, Zoe, it's so cool that you can dedicate your life to watches. What do you say to them when they say things like, oh, I wish I could quit my job or, or focus, you know, just on watches and things like that? What do you say to them? Well, at the moment, I feel the market's really oversaturated with dealers so I, it depends what they want to do within the industry. It definitely, I can give advice for, you know, media or being a watch dealer, all that stuff. I would say probably don't quit your day job immediately. Like really kind of dip your toes in the water first, see how it goes and then go full force. But, um, I think getting into the watch industry is probably easier than most people would think. And it's just because there are so many different facets of the watch industry that you can get into. Yeah, there's just so much that you can do with it. And I get asked all the time, like, you know, can I help someone get into the industry? And I try. I definitely try. I've been asked tons and tons of times. And often I'm also asked, you know, what people in the industry who want a new job, I get that all the time. Like, when did I become a headhunter all of a sudden? (laughs) I'm not getting paid for this at all. I mean, I'm I'm glad to help that. I mean, you know, I I remember a situation multiple, multiple times where people would go to me and they said, when I was in high school, I would read a blog to watch because I liked watches. And then just sort of serendipitously, I actually ended up working in the industry through, through mm-hmm. like you said, multiple means. They could it'd be retail, marketing, uh, finance. There's all types of weird ways that they get into it. And then at some point, they have a chance to work uh, like with me on media or something like that. And it's very odd to them because, you know, they, they read me as a hobby and now they get to work in it. And, yeah. you know, that, of course, makes me feel strange because I'm, you know, <laughs> but it's it, it, it does happen a lot where enthusiasts find their way in um, and you just got to you just got to do it. Uh, but, you know, we you know what my advice is to people that want to get in the watch industry is to be a good watch buyer. Very important <laughs> role. We need more of those all the time. Yes. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Definitely take that position. Go out somewhere, collect as much cash as you can so that you can <laughs> fuel your hobby by buying a lot of fun watches to make you happy uh, and then and then show them off uh, on the internet. That should be the formula, right? That's what we should say to everyone. That's step one, for sure. 
Now, you said something interesting about the market being oversaturated with watch dealers that maybe so, I'm, I'm not really sure. But I also know that sometimes people accuse the industry of being too oversaturated with with new watches. It, it makes mm-hmm. it very difficult for people. And I've been thinking about this, so I'd like your opinion. And here's, here's the premise, okay? The premise is this. I know that it takes people on average six to 12 months to make a decision to buy a watch. So from the time they first learn about a watch that they're eventually going to buy, they're spending six to 12 months pondering it, looking at alternatives, maybe waiting for the right occasion, you know, birthday, anniversary, whatever. You, you don't just buy a watch whenever. It's a, big, it's a big expense. Now, when another watch comes in their purview that they might want to buy, it completely destroys this timeline, right? You could just have to start all over again because like, oh, there's another watch I want more. So what I think happens today is that so many watches are coming out that consumers aren't able to progress through this six to 12 month range and then buy a watch. They're constantly stopped by other potential things and they have to restart this clock such that less, less purchases happen because people can't make decisions than would otherwise happen if there was less new products being thrown at them. And again, this is the overall theory. I'm working on it. I, what's your opinion? It's, that's really interesting because I come from um, not only just working in the secondary market, but I mostly buy um, through this through the secondary market. I love neo vintage watches, so that's kind of been my focus recently. That's what we're calling them now. Okay. Yeah, kind of. You know, like late. It doesn't 90s, have a good name. Like 2000s. the last twenty years. I know. I yeah, know, I know. exactly. Neo vintage. So neo vintage. Um, so I personally don't get too distracted by new releases because I'm usually not the buyer for them. But the other interesting thing, so you and I have very different perspectives on this. I work with so many, I work with so many clients that are so impatient when buying watches. Like, you know, it's that addiction coming and they just need to get a fix. And I have so many clients that just buy watches so kind of just like, I don't want to say like once a month, but you know, a crazy amount of times that it's not like they're, th- they're taking six to 12 months to buy something. And it's usually the type of thing where it's like a new watch comes out. So they put their name down with their authorized retailer or the brand and they get it. And if another one comes out that they want, they buy that too. So I work with, I guess I kind of work with crazy people. Um, where they definitely do not take six to 12 months to decide to buy something. It's it's a particular segment of the market. They do exist. Um, Remember, first you need a particular income level to do that. Most people who buy watches, again, I'm talking about the average. There's slices. (laughs) People that have a watch dealer, if you have a watch person, guy or gal that you talk to, you're obviously of a higher income bracket and you're buying this a lot. The average person cannot afford help in the hobby, right? (laughs) Um, And and that's a valuable service because it takes a long time. There's so much happening in the watch industry. You know, working with someone like Zoe or an analog helps you keep up to date on what's going on because you're probably Mm -hmm. busy, you have other things going on. You need you need curation in the hobby. I mean, uh, you know, even reading a blog to watch on a daily basis, while that's popular, 
some people like can't even manage that. They need a consolidator. They need someone like you. Um, and for you, the only way that you can be their watch buddy is if there's a business in for you, right? Like you have to pay right. bills and things like that. So it's a very natural thing, you know, and, and I think that sometimes people in your position also jest that you're a bit of an enabler. Like, you know, you're kind of oh, like, totally. that's their drug. And you're like, I gotta have some, what do you got for me? And it, They're like, can you source this super, super rare high comp hoping that, you know, it's going to take a couple weeks or a couple months to find it. And I'm like, yeah, no problem. Here's the price. And they're like, oh, crap, you found it already. <laughs> like, definitely an enabler. Now, you know, is, is it a good or bad thing that this hobby, um, you know, is, is that way for some people? I guess the larger point I'm getting at is we all have addictions. We should find healthy ones. <laughs> uh, watches are, you know, uh, they're not as damaging the body as maybe an injectable drug, but right. they can be very, very expensive. And I think that there's not enough discussions out there about how, you know, how to spend given what, how much money you have. Because there's this idea that there's all these amazing watches and there's this normalization of things that cost $50,000, whatever. And it makes a lot of people feel put off or insecure because they're like, wait a minute, should I be able to afford all this stuff? Why is there not more conversations about being real with the budget that you have? I would be lying if I said that I never have used the phrase watch therapist before. Since I have so many conversations with my clients and it really is a friendly relationship, I mean, sometimes there's just a lot of back and forth about, you know, should I be spending my money on this? I just bought this. Or there's a lot of therapy going on, like trying to work through this addiction with people. Um, yeah, the conversation is not, it's probably not that common. So I guess I'm a good sounding board for when people do need to talk through this addiction. But yeah, it, it happens a lot. <laughs> You, you, you say that a little mischievously as though there have been times where people, uh, you know, just, just need it. You, you maybe need to talk them a little more. It was easier just to get them a watch and have them kind of shut up. Exactly. Well, it's also, it is my business. And look, I'm always, I really focus on, on the client's needs more than, you know, making a few bucks because in my mind, having a relationship is much more valuable. Long-term view. Long-term exactly, view. Exactly. Having a, a relationship is more valuable um, where someone will come back to me and work with me for a long time and maybe you know spend a few less dollars today, but a few more in the future. That's how I see it. So I would never be a bad watch therapist. I would never coerce someone into buying watches if I don't think that they should be. Hi, I'm Ariel Adams, founder of a blog to watch with a message from eBay, a platform I probably use daily. Make sure your watches are the real deal with eBay Authenticity Guarantee. I believe it's the first and best service of its kind that protects your luxury purchases and checks each watch individually at eBay's highly reputable authentication partner, Stolen Company, in the United States. From band to bezel, their authenticators ensure each wristwatch matches the eBay listing and is the real deal. Authenticity guarantee is also very fast. Once authentication is complete, your watch is securely delivered via rapid two-day shipping. Surprisingly, eBay's authenticity guarantee service is free for all watches priced $2,000 and up. No one should buy a luxury item without an authenticity guarantee. Do what I do and check eBay before each watch purchase because everyone deserves real. Now, I believe, and I want you to talk about it, that some of the people that maybe you learned a little bit from that mentored you 
happen to be amongst the better folk, you know, responsible, care about the consumer. Obviously, yes, they're salespeople, uh, but you know, over at, at, at Govberg and Watchbox in, you know, in Philadelphia, um, there is a, a, a high degree of ethics, I think, that happens. And, and again, it's, it's all relative in, in sort of a sales environment, but you know, a, a pretty decent degree of ethics, wanting to make sure people are good and looking at that long term. Um, you, you were there on that, that sales floor, right? I was. I was in the Philadelphia office for, I think it was a year or a year and a half, but I was mostly in the Hong Kong office for three and a half years. And my mentor and honestly, best boss in the world, best manager in the world um, is Josh Rolovitz, who is the head of the Hong Kong office. And his approach, I really learned so much from him. He is so knowledgeable and really just a very genuine, great guy. And he you know, I saw him building relationships with his clients that, I mean, when the first, when the office opened, I guess at this point, it might've been five years ago, he still has those clients today. And he's built such an incredible book of business because of the way that he works with clients. And I learned so much about how to treat clients. I think Watchbox and Govberg really is a premium service to buy a watch. You really get the best of the best in terms of the salespeople that you work with and just the service that they provide. They think of every way that someone might need help in buying a watch or sell a watch, and they have a solution for that. They've figured it out. So I learned, you know, from the best working there. I've always wondered what some of the, we'll call it water cooler conversation is like. I mean, you're, you're, you're oh, sort of a crazy. sales floor. Yeah. What, what, do you, what do y'all talk about? Well, for one... Because we all, well, we all, I used to work there, so I'm not there anymore, but there's everyone there is really passionate about watches. So you can imagine it's mostly just like, oh my God, I just got this FP Jorn T30 and you have to see it. And then everyone huddles around and looks at it. It's an exciting moment and everyone's like, ah, this is crazy. So there's a lot of just excitement about deals that that are happening and watches that are coming in. And um, water cooler talk, I would think, is more of like, I don't know. I remember when the when the Hong Kong office first opened up, there was a guy that was sitting in the lounge and we were having this conversation. And he was like, I have too many tourbillons. And I just was like, I need to write a book about the most ridiculous things that people say in the watch world. <laughs> and that's one of them. Like someone who says, I have too many turbions, like that, that would be water cooler talk, I would think. The, the thing like, is, you can actually have too many turbions <laughs> and become you annoying can. to service them. So it's a real thing, but it sounds <laughs> ridiculous. It's amusing to hear what I think we consider to be like rich person problems, right? Exactly. Like, that's what it is. And Hong Kong's a different level. Yeah, yeah, and, and Ho- Hong Kong is a wonderful, wonderful place for watches. I unfortunately don't think it's going to have the same future as it has uh, had a past with watches, just giving a lot of uh, how it's changing as an economic hub. But I remember mm-hmm. when I first went to Hong Kong, I don't know, close to 10 years ago now, and just being inundated with the signage, the watch signage. And I, I would joke that, there's nowhere you could turn your head in the city and you wouldn't see like a watch brand name. So true. I remember the first day that I walked to work, I 
was living in Shenwan and just walked down Queens Road Central to the Watchbox office, which is off of Queens Road Central on Duddle Street. And it was my first day walking to work and I passed, I'm not even exaggerating, I'm not even being dramatic. There were four authorized retailers for Protect Philippe. There were, uh, I'm trying to think, two or no, probably three um, like bigger authorized retailers that have amazing brands. And it just, like you said, there's nowhere that you can look and you don't see some sort of authorized retailer, watch brand advertisement, something that has to do with watches. It's, it's full on over there. And it was such a cool experience to work there while being in this industry. Yeah. When I, when I first started going there, it was almost as though the city of Hong Kong was a shrine to my religion. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, it was, I, I, you don't feel that way anywhere else because it's not only is there the availability of watches. That's a very basic level. But there's there's a promotion of the categories such that watches feel like one of the most important things in the world. It's and true. coming from where I was, you know, in, in living, you know, in the West Coast of California where there's so much else going on, you know, you don't meet a lot of watch lovers uh, in day-to-day basis, especially I didn't at the time before watch communities started to form. Like, it was just considered a weird, esoteric thing, and uh, you just knew it was sort of a private indulgence and hobby. But you're here in Hong Kong, and it's like, oh, my God, the waiters have Rolexes on, and it's just— Taxi it's, drivers. Yeah, yeah. everyone. Mm-hmm. And yep. it's an—but the sad thing is I, I, I bet that a lot of the signs are still there— I don't know if if Hong Kong's going to have their future. What, when did you leave uh, Hong Kong? I left uh, in the middle of COVID. So that was June 2021. And it was still like all the restrictions were still there. So I think restaurants were closed at 6 p.m. You had to wear a mask indoors and outdoors. It was mandatory. Um, it was closed to, you know, non-residents traveling. So it was totally restriction filled. And I was like, all right, I, there's not much longer that I can really be here, um, with these restrictions. And I decided to come back to New York. And, um, at that point, what's interesting is that when it, the pandemic started, basically it started in China, obviously, and then it was making its way around Asia and Hong Kong was one of the first countries to kind of shut down, um, travel, international travelers coming in because, and, and took it really, really seriously. So what that meant for people of Hong Kong is they, they weren't able to travel for longer than basically anyone, anyone else in the world. And while the rest of the world, especially the United States just started to see how the pandemic was, you know, affecting everything and there were shutdowns and people were staying home and all that stuff. Hong Kong was actually in a weird way thriving in its own little bubble. I actually had my best sales year in 2020 during the pandemic because all of these watch collectors in Hong Kong, they couldn't travel, they couldn't spend their money elsewhere. And basically, because they were stuck, like something that was fun and interesting, um, and kind of a distraction from the pandemic was to 
come in and, and look at watches and buy watches. So it was a really interesting time to be there where I think it was the only time that the watch market really dipped during COVID around like June, 2020, the market started to go down a little bit, but it was super, super strong in Hong Kong. It was very interesting. Thank you for telling that story. And and, and you're right, that situation where people were uh, pleasure buying uh, when there was yeah. not much else to do in the pandemic was a real thing. What's interesting to me is you didn't uh, touch on any of the larger, broader political and economic reforms in Hong Kong that really don't have anything to do with the pandemic that have shifted uh, the tax incentives to buy there. Uh, obviously, the the ability for um, Hong Kong to be as open to foreign investment and foreign people has changed right. with, with a lot of the, the Chinese legal system being introduced there. So I, I think that there's been a broad effort from Beijing to refocus um, on places like Hainan uh, for right. luxury watch shopping. And I just... I, I'm of the belief that the combination of these political and economic factors just mean that Hong Kong will not be the hub of money that it needs to be uh, in order to be that that amazing focal point uh, of watch appreciation. It'll always still be important, but I just don't think it's going to shine as bright. It may not, but a part of me feels like it still will be a massive, massive hub because there's no import tax. There's no sales tax. There's nowhere else in Asia, to my knowledge, that doesn't have import tax or sales tax. And the import tax and sales tax is typically very high in Asian countries. So, But, it is, for but that you have reason, it if you're Chinese. So we're, we're talking specifically about the Chinese consumer, the mainlanders, as they would call them, who would right, come to, go Hong to Hong Kong, Kong to buy watches. Right. And right, on right, all right. kinds of stuff. Yeah. Now, yeah. when they no, bring it back right. to China, they got to pay. So you're right. There are others right. that come. But that was a huge part of the business. Right. You're right. Yeah, uh, that's a massive part of the business. It's just, I guess, for the last year and a half that I was there in Hong Kong, we didn't have people traveling from China anyway. So it, it like didn't affect me that much. But you're right. For the future, it's definitely going to be a big change. I just, I lament it because I, I, I had this thing where like, I really like Hong Kong people. Like when I would meet Hong Kong people that grew up there, I would have this kinship. I don't know what it is. Like this guy from LA and these people from Hong Kong <laughs> seem to speak the same language. And I, 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 I have so much fondness for my friends from Hong Kong. And it makes me sad to think that the next generation won't have that same experience because the politics and the culture is going to yeah. be different. And I want to, I want to preserve this city that made other people that think like me. I mean, I know maybe that's a little selfish, but it, it, it was it was so nice to not just go. It's not even just about watches. Just in general, right. like Hong Kong people are just so great by and large. And I, 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 again, I lament the fact that there might be an erosion on that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I also think a big part of that is the expat community not being as prominent there anymore. Um, so many expats left during COVID and I don't foresee a lot of expats moving to Hong Kong now with all the political and economical changes that, that are happening, that's happening for the future of Hong Kong. So that's sad as well. I mean, expat community is, is a big culture, a big part of culture in Hong Kong. Um, and I, I don't think that will be the same as it was ever either, really. Well, I think here's the interesting question. You had this experience in Hong Kong. I didn't live there, but I traveled there a series of times. 
what can we learn about what they got right about watch culture there that we can export to other places? You know, uh, you know New York City has a lot of signage as well, but it no, nowhere seems to come close, especially in, in the Western world, to what was in Hong Kong. What are some things that we can adopt from what they did there? Maybe it's an industry initiative. Maybe it's a media or consumer initiative. What are some of the lessons you think? I think that just simply put, there's le- it's less about trends in Hong Kong. You definitely have people that, you know, they want their Nautilus, they want their Aquanaut, they want their Daytona. There's definitely trends, but it's less focused on that for the culture. Like people buy watches for other reasons. Um, and I think that at least what I'm feeling right now in the market in the U S is that everyone just wants kind of watches that they can post on Instagram and get a ton of likes with. It is no longer this really personal reason to buy a watch, like something that really speaks to you and as an individual and not like for clout. And I just always felt that in Hong Kong that people were really buying watch brands and styles um, just because they loved it, not because it was trendy. So I guess I wish there was more of that in the U.S. market where, yeah, people are buying because they love the watch, not because everyone else loves the watch. So is that a function of making people love watches more or alternatively (laughs) reducing the power of trends? Both. Can it be both? I think. Okay. We, I, again, I it's it's just it's, I think it's an interesting conversation. Yeah. I think that um, maybe having media focus not so much on trends and more about what makes watches you know special and potential heirlooms for your family and the history behind watchmaking and certain brands and have people fall in love with watches for what they are and not for, you know, how other people perceive well, you well, having hold, that hold watch. Uh, you, you bring up an important point, and, and I agree with you on a substantive basis, but maybe not from a responsibility basis. Media is doing what media is incentivized to do, which is talk about new things and True. to discuss consumer trends. Like, what you're talking about is the creation of emotions and talking right. about some of the deeper meanings. To me, that's where advertising comes in. That's the realm that's a good of point. Okay. building building that there. So I, I, I don't know that, that media is in the best position to do this. Well, sorry. So when I say media, I really mean social media, where there are just a lot of people that kind of repost the same things, the same stories, the same photos of celebrities wearing something. So I mean that more than, obviously, advertising would do a really wonderful job it's probably what needs to change to capture kind of emotional buying instead of trendy buying. So yes, I agree with you. It's not so much media. I was thinking more of, you know, social media and what other, a lot of people pick up from social media. Now, Patek Philippe is famous for their, their slogans, which I like to point out were adopted from the Swiss private banking industry. (laughs) <laughs> but this idea that you don't own a watch, but you preserve it for future generations. Again, the same thing with a bank account. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, 
And they've done a good job of, again, instilling the sense of larger grandeur and emotion uh, rather than just you're buying a watch. But I've always recognize the fact that most brands aren't going to be able to do this. And maybe the onus goes back on to the retailer. And I guess my question Mm -hmm. for you is, why does retail, and maybe it's just a matter of cost, not do more of that? If they sell against emotion, why don't they have more of a hand in creating emotion? I mean, uh, Danny Godberg has been on the show, and he and I have gone back and forth about this for many years. He seems to agree in principle, but he seems to be very impatient. And every time he advertises, it's like, okay, buy the watch right now. He doesn't <laughs> seem to have the patience to build a larger campaign that builds an emotion and stuff like that. But maybe that's because no one told him he should, or he just doesn't, hasn't thought about it yet. Do you think that retail might be in the best position, both economically and, and there to gain, from doing the type of advertising that does focus on the emotion, especially because they're talking to niche groups or regions where the emotions are different. The emotions around buying a watch in South Florida are going to be different than South Asia. And right. it's y- you need to have a more regional focus. And I've always thought that some of these big retail chains, they're the ones that should be investing in this. And I, I, I'd like your opinion on that. I think that's... A very good point. And now that you say that, it's probably very difficult because like you said, there are different, you know, things that people react to, different regional or cultural things that can speak to someone. Um, And it has to be kind of, it has to be really focused. So that might just be more difficult than doing, you know, the trendy, salesy type of vibe and just, you know, selling someone a watch because it's a watch and not really cater to the emotional aspect of buying a watch just because it's easier to not. (laughs) I think it's as simple as that. It's probably very difficult to tap into emotional buying for certain regions. Is it ironic how thrifty the luxury watch industry is? Uh, Yeah, I would say that's pretty, it's pretty ironic. (laughs) They, there's a lot of money that is being asked for the products. And there's a healthy profit margin. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're, they're, they're making money. They're not like we needed every bit of that MSRP to make the watch. They're, right. they're, they're making a profit margin. Yet they seem to be so hyper-focused on themselves collecting all the money. And oftentimes this <laughs> is a result of factories making, you know, complicated decisions across, you know, various markets around the, around the globe. I mean, factories operate uh, with this sort of notion of efficiency, which I understand. But I think it's very interesting to point out that the watch industry, uh, and more so than any other element of the luxury industry, seems to be so hesitant into investing in marketing when it's clear to everyone it's a marketing-driven industry. I don't know why that is. I've never been on the marketing media side of things. Um, So I can only really speak to, you know, how I sell a watch. But I think you're totally right. It's everything seems very traditional when it comes to like brand advertising. There's nothing that's really exciting. I remember Bryn Walner, who does the account, her account is Dime Piece on Instagram. She posted this really, really fun 
uh, magazine ad and I don't remember what company it was, but it was for clothes. And it was like a bunch of people kind of partying in these incredibly beautiful clothes. And it just looked like such a vibe. And then she turned the page and there was a watch ad and it was so stale, so stuffy. Exactly. (laughs) And she was so right. It's like, why can't, why can't advertising be more fun for watches? And I do think actually that could potentially go back to, you know, emotional buying where you see this vibe, these people partying and they're wearing these fabulous watches and you're like, I want that. I want to feel that. So I think maybe advertising just needs to get a little bit more creative and and less stale, less traditional. I've noticed this particular topic, and I've been talking about it uh, for a long time now, mentioned it with brands many, many times. I've I've fought the good fight uh, a lot. I've I've probably answered all the questions of why they don't. I wouldn't call them good answers, Mm -hmm. but they're basically like, we don't want to spend money. We don't want to make decisions. We don't want to take risks. We don't feel like it's for us to spend. We want someone else. Like a bunch of we don't want to answers. Right. And that's because the industry in in a lot of ways, at least from a brand perspective, is run by uh, financial people. And financial people do not spend money they can't account for. Creative people do. And creative right. people are the ones that make money. I think that's what the industry doesn't understand. Financial people don't make money. You need them when you get money. It's creative people that make money. And when you put a financial person in a creative role, guess what? You're not going to make any money. You're just going to spend it. You're totally right. I agree. All right. So how do we change this? How do we, how do we get some more exciting advertising going? We, we have to start trends. We have to have start conversational trends. What I found is that the watch industry makes decisions when they think that it was their decision. So if, we th- if they think it's our decision, no, sorry, American. But if it eventually like gets into their mind and, and that seed sprouts into a tree and, and they think that, wow, I came up with something, that's the way to do it. So by having <laughs> the conversation enough times, making this – uh, this sort of sentiment be in the air, eventually it will implant themselves uh, in their brains and, and they'll, they'll do this. Just don't expect it to happen tomorrow. This is industry that tends to lag minimum five years behind the trend. Yeah, that's true. And also it's just such a historical, traditional luxury sector that it's going to take a lot of effort to change anything. Let's, let's change tack again now to content as part of the conversation. And so part of what you do is you have a broadcasted conversation with enthusiasts in addition to the private conversations you have, of course. And we'll take Instagram, for example, and maybe some of the other media you do. But you you take pictures, you have a conversation. Um, where does this content come from? And, and I guess how important is being able to have an ongoing conversation with the quote-unquote public to the work that you do today? A lot of the content that I post is just everyday lifestyle things with my watches. Um, I like to show how, you know, I incorporate watches into my outfits or my travels, like what watches I pick to go to um, skiing in Lake Tahoe or what watch I wear on the beach in Malibu as like bougie as this all sounds. I like to show how, I mean, my Instagram handle is literally watch girl off duty. So I love to show how watches are involved in my life when I'm not working. 
Um, so a lot of the content is, is very organic. It's literally at that moment, you know, I'm eating at a restaurant and I take a wrist shot, but otherwise I do repost a lot of other people's photos that of watches that I love, that I find interesting, that I, I think it's worth sharing just to, um, you know, change it up a little bit and also share kind of my interests in certain watches and styles. And then I also like to, you know, do ask me anything questions to help anyone who I don't immediately, like who I don't already speak to, um, who aren't clients, but you know, they have watch questions. I just try to, I try to be as varied as possible, but really the, the whole thing about it is that I want to be personable and I want people to want to work with me just because, you know, they like either my take on watches or they want to be my friend. <laughs> I think it's interesting what you said at the beginning about, you know, just showing where you're wearing watches. I call it suggestive content. I think it's very important because as we indicated, the watch ads have a watch floating in space with some type of generic background. (laughs) It's not at all suggestive of what it looks like on a human wrist, what you might be doing with it, what you might be wearing with it, how people might be reacting to it, right? None of that. And I think that a lot of social media content has tried to fill that gap. It's been suggestive of here's how you can wear this watch and what you might want to do with it. Because let's, let's say at the end of the day, watches are sort of a form of adult toy. And we imagine a persona for ourselves when we wear them, similar to when we're playing as a kid. Uh, I, you know, I'm an adventurer or I'm a classy this person or I'm really into art. Whatever it is, there's like a character or sort of like a, a, a cape you wear when you have this. And you, you can be someone who develops it yourself, but sometimes you want to be romanced on this idea that, hey, if you wear this watch, you could do these things or feel this way. And that's yeah. where the suggestive content comes in. And it's, again, that's the sort of way I take it. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think that's a very good way of putting it. Um, also, it is weird to say that sometimes that does influence sales, For example, watches that I personally own, I have people that see me wearing it and they're like, can you help me source one of these watches? So that's a whole other thing, like the influential aspect of it where I'm unintentionally selling the watches that I have in my own collection. That's a whole other thing that I find pretty wild. Does it make you wish you had more wrists? (laughs) Um... Honestly, I feel like I have enough watches, as crazy as that sounds, as someone who is definitely addicted to watches. I don't get to wear my watches as often as I want to. So yes, I guess that does mean I wish I had four wrists, even though it would be... Then if I had four wrists, I would probably feel like I needed to buy more watches, which is it's just crazy and it's not true. I feel like Quality over quantity is an important motto for my for me to have personally as a dealer because I have access to anything that I want. I really have to be very strategic on what I actually buy for myself. So this sort of leads us into the last uh, question before we end this particular conversation. We'll have to have more. And that is not what you do with not, – not about buying watches but about getting rid of them. 
And this is a very important thing because as you buy watches, you your collection grows and grows and grows. And not everyone, but most people tend to want to offload watches. Um, talk a little bit about when it's best to get rid of a watch and some of the ways that you recommend doing it, especially given that most people want to get rid of a watch to get a new one. I love that question. Something that I really, really try to drill into my, um, (laughs) into my clients who tend to be, you know, kind of their eyes are bigger than their wrists, I want to say, or their watch box, their eyes are bigger than their watch box. And then they, you know, frantically need to sell something because they have something coming, um, something new coming in. So I always say, don't sell anything that's not replaceable. And what I mean by that is there are certain watches that, um, are totally, totally replaceable. And it may be more expensive now than you bought it then, or maybe less than when you bought it. But for example, if you want a white dial, you know, a Panda Daytona, ceramic Daytona, that would be a good watch to sell because it's very replaceable. If you have a ruthenium dial 99 piece limited edition of a Calendrier, FP Journe, I would not suggest, if you love the watch, I would not suggest selling it as one of your options because it will be very difficult to replace. So I really try to work with clients on helping them sell pieces that they're not going to regret in the future. Because sometimes you have to sell a watch, not because you want to, but you may need to. And in that case, you really have to look at your collection um, and the pieces individually and be like, okay, if, you know, I, I, I don't really need, I don't want to sell it, but I kind of need to, what would be the best to sell it this time? Um, it's a lot of strategic selling, I would say. I also really try to get people to sell watches that they're not wearing and they're not loving. Like maybe they bought it at a certain time just because it was convenient or they liked it at the time and they don't love it anymore. I always think that consolidating into a more focused curated collection is the way to go instead of having 200 watches, which yes, I know some people who have 200 watches Obviously, they don't wear all of that, but to consolidate, you know, let's say 10 watches into one watch that they'll wear a lot, I think that is a really good way of going about selling watches is consolidating into a more curated collection. Zoe, thank you so much. Where can people find out more about you or reach you on the internet? So my Instagram handle is watchgirloffduty. That is definitely where I'm the most active. And I'm in the middle of doing a big website refresh with some new features that will hopefully be finalized by the summer. But my current website is grawlimited.com. This has been the Superlative Podcast interview with Zoe Abelson. Zoe, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at ablogtowatch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.